to episode 421 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm going to be carrying you through part one solo. Uh, as I'm going to do a little tiff diary uh, as we are back home from the Toronto International Film Festival. We're going to do a wide-ranging uh, tiff diary between Reed, Andrew, and myself next week uh, ahead of the Stop Making Sense episode. But uh, I'm just going to go through some ones that I caught that the others did not, that I did want to make note of. Um, real quickly, that's what we're going to be doing in part one. In part two, Grace is going to join me. Uh, and we're going to be talking about... 1968 Monterey Pop. Uh, we had to do a last-minute switch on the movie, so we're going to be talking about 1968 uh, Monterey Pop this week as part of our concert movie series. But let's go ahead and jump into the TIFF diary. So um, overall, strong festival. It was much more um, uh, in the in the vein of what it used to be. Less um, less COVID restrictions. Um, they did away with the virtual. Um, the, the virtual program that you could uh, you could watch whether at home or, or what have you to, to watch some of the films so it was all in person everybody in Toronto and it was cool to see it at full strength again always um, always a pleasure to go up, up north and enjoy um, what I, at least I mean in, in my very limited experiences the best film festival to check out in North America um, but I got a I got four films I was going to touch on we're going to touch on some of the big ones next week uh, Glass Onion the um, the Knives Out sequel uh, both Andrew and I saw that so we're going to talk about that next week so if you're cur- curious about thoughts on that that'll be coming next week uh, Wendell and Wild the new Henry Selleck film with Key and Peele we'll talk about all three of us saw that so we'll talk about that next week and then um, probably my favorite from the festival, the new Park Chan-wook movie, Decision to Leave. Uh, Andrew and I caught that in a press screening, and so we're going to talk about that next week as well. So some of the, you know, a couple of the juicier titles coming uh, next week, but I mean, I got a Spielberg title for you this week, so let's, you know, we ain't just chop liver over here. Um, the first one I wanted to talk about is The Woman King. Like I said, it's coming into uh, theaters on Friday. Uh, it is the latest from director Gina Price Bythewood, who uh, most people know from Love and Basketball. Um, she also did an action movie for Netflix last year called The Old Guard. Or last year or the year before? Recently, she did one for Netflix. Uh, this one stars Viola Davis, though. Um, and Viola Davis is General Nasika. Uh, she is the uh, leader of the Agoji, which is a female warrior unit uh, that protected uh, the African Kingdom of Dahomey in the 1800s. Um, and so, this uh, this kingdom, who has a new king uh, played by young king played by John Boyega, is uh, being threatened by. A, another tribe in the region who's trying to kind of take over uh, the land and resources there. They are getting backing from, uh, I believe they're Spanish, I believe they're Spanish, either Spanish or Portu- uh, Portuguese, um, ex- uh, slavers, really. I mean, they're uh, slavers who are are asking this this uh, who are asking this 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 country that's trying to take over to whenever they conquer the you know the 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 king the other kingdoms that they want them to capture the people there so that they can send them back to be traded um, and so we're uh, pretty action packed movie it's a little over two hours um, it. Uh, I think it moves pretty well. It starts, you know, you start out with a nice, uh, with a nice action sequence to kind of set the mood. It's so you got Viola Davis, uh, Lashana Lynch is in it, who was um, the 007 in the most recent Bond. Um, I believe she's in the Captain Marvel movies. I've not seen those, so I, I haven't seen that. So um, I mean, I have no opinion on <laughs> opinion on her in that one um she's good here she's one of the kind of leader one of the other leaders of this unit um but the story mainly centers around this young girl who uh is is betrothed to be married she rejects the marriage and so her father just kind of does away with her and tosses her to um join these these warriors and it, a lot of the movie 
is a little bit of like them training them up, but then also just kind of the the push and pull between this uh, young warrior played by Thuso uh, Medu, uh, M- Mbedu, um, who is the lead character in Barry Jenkins' uh, fantastic series, Underground Railroad. Um, but a lot of the movie is the kind of push and pull between her and Viola Davis's character, as well as just some of the other leaders um, as she kind of uh, uh, is just very much like that that rogue, you know, hungry, ready to get started um, young warrior in this in this group. Um, but overall, I mean, as like kind of just this. I mean, it, it, it really is like kind of a blockbuster movie. Um, I'll be honest, I, I shut off Old not, old Guard, the last Gina Prince Bythewood movie, um, after like 30 minutes. It was really, really, really boring. Um, this one is way more engaging. Um, the fighting's strong. Um, it's a lot of... I'll be honest, though, it's a lot of like what you get out of many modern modern action movies to a degree like it's very physical um the the kind of sword play and the different weapon play is 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 you know entertaining to watch but it's all it's just you know it's a lot of similar movements to what you see i don't know the choreography is very similar to um what you're getting in a lot of different hollywood fare not to say that it's it's a bad thing um, but that, you know, it's not like the fighting just really stood out. Um, the thing that also kind of disappointed me about it is that, you know, it, I feel like it has this opportunity to be really visually striking. Um, and it, it's not, not visually striking, but it really kind of just tampers that down and, and kind of, um, doesn't really go for something that is, it didn't really go for the spectacle in this. It's very much like focused on kind of the story and these characters and things like that, which is, which I think is really strong. I think the story, the story itself and the characters kind of involved at play in this movie are incredibly engaging. And that makes it, um, you know, worth, worth checking out if you're kind of interested in this, because I mean, Viola Davis as kind of the, the action lead for this is, is very, very good. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the scenes are, are great. I mean, there's a, there's a big fight, you know, near the end of it where they're, you know, it's them taking down a bunch of, you know, enslaved people traders. And that's, uh, that's, you know, that's cool to watch <laughs> when, when they're just cutting a lot of those people down. That's a, you know, that's great to watch. I, and I, and I will say that, you know, I think that they do do a great job with the set pieces. The opening sequences like this, um, like the way that they enter the scene in that opening set piece is pretty, is really cool. She, she plays with like the lighting and stuff pretty well. And set piece wise, I mean, like the final kind of conflicts and things like that do have a little bit of like this spaciousness to it. Like there's one, um, you know, for lack of a better word, like open field Game of Thrones types scene where it's just like, you know, good guys on the one side, bad guys on the other, and they just kind of run in the middle and clash. And those, I think those scenes are, are handled really, really well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think quite honestly, I think it's worth checking out if you're just kind of looking for, if you've been hankering for like a, just a fun, interesting blockbuster. Like I think that the, the story and, and, and stuff is at least trying to engage in different things that elevates it over, you know, the basic superhero fare. Like, I think you're getting, you're getting more out of this than you would be for, uh, you know, like a Thor movie or something like that. And so I, I recommend checking out the the Woman King on those on those merits because I think it was worth seeing it like on a big screen. Um, I think unfortunately I saw it in like the the press audience, which is not you know no it's not bad, but press people are usually just kind of taking it in and writing notes and things like that. So I'd be curious to see it like in a set in like a more public setting where people are like engaged in the movie and cheering and things like that. I think, I think it could honestly be a pretty fun time. And I'm, I hope that this movie does well. I, I'm, I'm kind of concerned that it'll get, um, get a little forgotten 
get a little uh, go a little under the radar, and so I hope people check it out in theaters. Um, and then I guess you know it seems like one destined for you know an HBO Max or something. I, I hope people find this movie somehow uh, somewhere because I think all the all the lead characters are firing on, on top pistons, and uh, I think it's a fun time. So Woman King, it's in theaters. If you're listening to this podcast on Friday, it came out today. Um, the next one I wanted to talk about is uh, a biopic of the uh, of of the French composer um, Chevalier de Saint Georges, um, but his uh, his real name is Joseph Joseph Bologna. Um, the movie's called Chevalier. It's directed by Stephen Williams. Um, so uh, Joseph, he was born in the French Caribbean in, the, in, this, in 1745. Um, he was the illegitimate son of an African enslaved person and a French plantation owner. And when you meet him, he's being dropped off by this plantation owner to uh, this, this very prestigious um, uh, uh, music school. And so, quite honestly, I, I like that it doesn't spend too much time of, like, young Joseph, like, rising through the... It gives you kind of a montage of him kind of going through school. Um, but he becomes this really skilled uh, violinist and composer, as well as a champion fencer. And so, when you kind of really pick up with the story, he's he's kind of at the top. The top of French society, he's... Um, He's, you know, getting. He has a has the ear of Marie Antoinette, who, um, you know, won't have that ear in the place that it's at very much longer in the course of the story. Um, you have he uh, he's like going to all of these lavish parties, all of these things, um, you know, very much at the at the top of French society. Um, but then uh, he gets word that his father has died and that um, he didn't leave him anything, but he did in his will um, uh, free his mother, who his mother is then sent to France to live with him. And so you kind of get this, um, the, 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 the kind of dichotomy between him, who's kind of moved, you know, has, has kind of had, or built himself to remove himself from his past to become this, this person of French society. And then his past is kind of coming to him. And then at the same time, he is competing with, um, this, I believe he's Austrian, um, this Austrian composer as they're, they're kind of vying for the role of the, the lead, um, the lead chair of the Paris Opera House. And so they're like having this competition where they both compose an opera. Um, the, the committee judges it and they'll pick a winner from there. Uh, while he's uh, creating this opera, he, he has this love affair with this French noblewoman who is his lead singer, um, who is also married to like the head of the king you know the king's guard which seems like a like maybe maybe don't bang the wife of the guy who's just going around killing people um and so i, I i've heard I've, I've heard his story like in in notes places um i've heard a little a lot of his music was lost um they got rid of it uh, napoleon bonaparte actually got got rid of a lot of it and so it's only been recently kind of salvaged and, and brought back to the forefront. But he has a really fascinating history that it doesn't, you know, this one gets more into his rise and falls in the French court leading and like literally ending at the, at the um, beginning of the French Revolution. Um, but he has a fascinating story. I mean, he, he led this all black brigade at the, in the French Revolution. Um, just really a fascinating person. And so um, the lead actor in this, Kelvin Harrison Jr., really does a fantastic job um, portraying him. Um, and so, it, it, I mean, it, to me, it's a very by, it's a very by the numbers biopic. Like you kind of know where the beats are going. Um, but I, I do think that like the, I think that Kelvin Harrison especially. Uh, so yeah, Chevalier. I don't know when. To be honest, when it's going to be released. Um, but I think it's one to check out. It's definitely one to check out whenever it does end up. It looks like it's. Uh, going to be distributed by Searchlight Pictures, so it probably will get a theater release, but Searchlight is usually, they usually put their stuff on um, 
Hulu. So I could see this popping up on Hulu at some points, but I think it's worth a, you know, it's a, it's, it's, like 140 minutes you know it's a excuse me an hour 40 minutes i think it's a nice i think it's a nice uh nice movie to watch and like i said kelvin harrison's really really good in it um yeah so chevalier on the next one this was actually the last movie i watched at tiff uh this is the latest adaptation of uh all quiet on the western front uh, this one is directed by Edward Berger, um, who is who is German born. Um, and for those who are unfamiliar, this is the th- I believe the third cinematic adaptation. The, uh, quite honestly, the best one was the 1930 version, <laughs> which is very 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 good. Um, which was really funny because I stayed a little bit. Uh, this was uh, I went to what was ended up being like the world premiere of the movie, and Edward Berger gets up there and is like talking about adapting you know the novel and that kind of stuff and i'm like yeah but you are you going to mention that there's been two other movies about this and he kind of he, he kind of alluded to the fact that like oh like i'm the you know there's a lot to there's a lot to adapt here for something that really hasn't been looked at and i'm just like mm, well, bud you should probably like do like a cursory google search and uh you'll find that there's two other all quiet on the western front movies but regardless um this one, a lot of no, a lot of uh, uh, no-name actors really in this, or, or like, not no-name is the wrong way to put it, but like, uh, first-time actors. Um, probably the most familiar face for American audiences is Daniel Bruhl, who most people know from uh, from Inglorious Bastards. Um, he plays the the German diplomat who's sent to uh, negotiate a, a ceasefire with uh, with the Allies and then. Not the Allies, but the, uh, the 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 French, the French and British forces. Um, but for those who are unfamiliar with all the all quiet on the Western Front, um, you follow Paul, um, who he and his friends uh, are kind of like egged on by this uh, these these kind of romantic notions of nationalism and here and heroism, and we have to we have to do this to. Um, you know, serve our duty and serve our country. And like this, you know, this is how we're going to, you know, we're going to bring Germany to its heights. And so um, what's interesting, this one doesn't spend too much time like with them in the village kind of getting hyped up. Uh, that's what I really love about the, the 1930 version, which is they spend a lot of time at the beginning of the movie with like them uh, in classes. Like you're, you, you're getting like, you're hearing this, this propaganda being perpetrated by, their teachers and uh, other officials there at the school, like going, like you got to do this. This is gonna be, you know, this is you're gonna define our our legacy. You're gonna def- you're gonna define Germany. You're like the great the great generation for us, um, and like you kind of like are soaked in with like this this over exuberant nationalism that they kind of go in with when they enter the the German forces. This one doesn't really spend too much time there. They kind of get them set up um, within like 20, 25 minutes and then they're immediately there in the, in the trenches. And so, um, and naturally uh, it, their, uh, their enthusiasm wa- uh, wanes drastically as they, you know, get deeper and deeper into the, into the forces and, and um, eventually getting to the Western front where um, pretty much the rest of the movie is just them trying to survive these just soul destroying horrors uh that are world war one so for those um you know world war one I, I think is kind of fascinating it gets it gets very much sidelined to world war ii because um at least as americans we like to talk about world war ii because it makes us feel good um it makes us feel like we've actually won stuff in recent times um and uh but world war one's kind of fascinating because one um just not that it wasn't, not not that it wasn't not brutal in World War Two, but World War One seems a little bit more brutal because you you enter you have mustard gas, you have like people with flamethrowers, um, you have like these very early tanks. Everybody's fighting in trenches. You have the trench warfare going on, um, and that's just kind of leaving people susceptible to to being killed. I mean, it's just. And like they mention it, like at the end of the movie, you know, the front's kind of set early on, and there it's literally the whole war. Nobody really moves too much. It's just like 
you know, France and Germany, like kind of fighting over these hundreds, these, these hundred yards. And so the movie does kind of, and I think that's what kind of separates this from the 1930 version a little bit is it, it it's, it dives in more to just like burger clearly, like rather than um, the 1930 version is very much like, let's use the psychological crumbling of Paul to, um, to kind of accentuate how this war is going like it doesn't lean on violence more and, and this one still does that to a degree but i don't think it develops it as much or at least as well and this one though that has just like brutalizing violence like i'm trying to think i'm i'm pretty unfazed by violence for the most part in movies but this one did kind of get me going oh like that like i to, like, I'll say, like, I recommend that people see this because I think that All Quiet on the Western Front is an important mo- is an important story to engage with, whether you read the book or you watch the, one of the movies. Um, if you don't want to watch, like, just excruciating violence, maybe watch the 1930 version. Um, but this one also is, like I was talking about with World War One. like, this is a really good example of just showing how goddamn brutal that war was and just how, like, bodies were just just completely just discarded over the course of this thing i mean you have the the kind of and also just how um how infected the minds of like german officials especially military officials are to no matter what like we just don't want like we're going down but we're going to go down on top and that and but they never are going to go down on top they just continue to send to send their young pretty much to be slaughtered out of their vanity and out of their hubris. And it's just, it, it, that, at that point it just becomes incredibly depressing. Um, but I mean, there's the sequence where, you know, they're, they're putting on this full assault, um, on the French forces. It's right. You know, they're getting close to coming to some agreement on the ceasefire. And so the German general is just like, we're going to go all in on this. And, it's just in like they kind of make some ground up. They're like making they're they're getting there. They they take over this one uh, you know trench, this one area of trenches. They they kind of uh, take it over for a minute, and then script flips on them, and you have these just three massive tanks come through, and they just start peppering people. You never really see the mustard gas as much, but I mean you do have that illusion. I mean at one point. Um, Paul and another guy and his friend Katz um, walk into this room where they're, they're they're trying to find 60 recent recruits who disappeared, and the 60 recent recruits are all dead on the ground because the French just tossed mustard gas in the room and shut the door, um, and so you kind of see the brutality there. But in this, I mean, you see the tanks, you have these these soldiers with the flamethrower backpacks just just mowing it, and in, so it's just like this incredibly brutal harrowing sequence where you're just watching people just get cut off left and right um and you're watching you know these four these four characters that at the beginning were just so excited to be you know they they had these romantic views of what was going to happen and you're just watching them kind of fall off one by one um and just and it and that's why i say it's probably important to watch is that I think that All Quiet on the Western Front is one of the great anti-war movies where, you know, you do is like in this one you do get like these these incredibly shot um, sequences of battle that are like whoa, but it also like is is um, saturated with like this kind of undercurrent of terror and horror. Um, from you know everything else so all quiet on the western front this ad uh, this version it's going to be on netflix i believe later this year um it's it's longer and like i, I mean i haven't like made it sound nice for people who are, don't want to just watch depressing gruesome violent war violence and people slowly realizing the horrors of war um but if I don't, I mean, like I said, honestly, I think it's a story that you should at least watch once. Maybe not this version. I think that the, that the 1930 version is really, really, really good. So go watch that one. And honestly, it's an engaging movie, even though it's, um, you know, it's nearly 100 years old. 
Uh, the last one I'm going to talk about is The Fablemans, the latest from Steven Spielberg. Um, this one is a semi-autobiography by Spielberg. Um, he's kind of touching on his his childhood. And so part of it is is the, the character in the movie is Sam, is named Sammy Fableman. Um, you watch him from age 7 to 18. And so you're watching Sammy kind of become more engaged and uh infatuated with the movie making process so part of it you have you know him obsessing over the movies and then but the other part of it is you're seeing kind of the family life um the the his mom and dad are played by paul dano and michelle williams and um you know they have about halfway through the movie this kind of family secret that has been somewhat percolating under under the water finally kind of comes ahead as, as Sammy's kind of reveals is or learns that he revealed it through um uh a, through filming that he shot on a family trip and so that's that starts to kind of unravel everything as as he's getting older as the the relationship between his mom and dad becomes more fractured as they move to uh as they're as they're moving all over the place because he is a is an engineer at one point uh working for rca then um general motors then uh, ibm and so i mean I don't know. It's a Spielberg movie. It's I mean, dude, dude, don't don't miss very often. Um, this I think it's really it's kind of funny for the recent run that we've seen of like filmmakers going. The movies are really important about uh, you know here's my life and here's how the movies made are were important to me. Um, this one I think is the you know for like you know Kenneth Branagh comes out with his Sam Mendes comes out with his all these and then Spielberg just kind of comes out with this and goes yeah this is how you. This is why I'm better than y'all. <laughs> I mean, let's just like let's just be honest. Like he goes, this is why I'm better than y'all because it's not just like this. It's not just this like self praise, self aggrandizing. Like, oh my gosh, the movies are incredible and I and everything was changed because of it. Because of it, but I th- I think it does kind of inform. It get, get, I think it provides some some information toward just. His childhood, I mean, I don't know if you want to sit there and, like, try to then use this to, like, read into all his movies. I mean, the thing, you know, he has this quote where he was like, you know, I didn't go to therapy. The movies were my therapy. And so maybe you should have gone to therapy, Stephen. But also, like, the lack of therapy led to, you know, a lot of the most recognizable blockbuster movies of the past 50 years. So, you know. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it is. It is what it is. But um, it's really good. There's a cameo. I don't want to spoil it for for people, but there's a cameo at the very end of it with um, a very famous director playing another very famous uh, fam- famous living director playing a very famous uh, dead director in like this short sequence, and it's wonderful. And honestly, it's like price of admission worthy. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. This I think it comes out later this year. I I think that regardless of if you're like a giant Spielberg fan or not, you'll enjoy this. I think he carries this with you know the strength of any other Steven Spielberg movie. It's it's wonderfully crafted. Um, Michelle Williams is especially fantastic in this movie. Um, and yeah, The Fablemans. I I highly recommend it. But um, all right, well we'll have the other Tiff movies next week, like I mentioned. Um, we're gonna take a short break, and then Grace is gonna be joining me, and we're gonna be talking about Monterey Pop after this. Loving you too long to stop now. Become a habit to me I've been loving you Oh, too long And I don't want to stop now 
and we're back with part two of episode 421 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be continuing our concert movie series with 1968's Monterey Pop. Uh, directed by D.A. Pennebaker, uh, the movie features appearances by the Mamas and the Papas, Simon and Garfunkel, Hugh Maskella, uh, Jefferson Airplane, The Who, Otis Redding, Jimi Hendrix, and Ravi Shankar. Uh, the film documents the Monterey International Pop Festival of 1967. Uh, Monterey Pop was originally planned as an hour-long special to be aired on ABC. Uh, production for it was handled by the Foundation, a recently formed nonprofit organiza- organization of musicians, including John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, and the band's producer, Lou Adler. The Foundation sponsored the music festival for which some 32 performers and acts were said to have donated their services. <clears throat> with proceeds from the show pledged to establish grants for upcoming artists and to generally advance pop music. Uh, Director D.A. Pennebaker was quoted in the uh, Washington Post in 2006 as saying he had never seen a concert film before working on Monterey Pop. His strategy was to shoot the entire festival using five portable 16mm cameras equipped with synchronized sound recording devices that Pennebaker and his colleagues made by hand. Uh, During post-production, an article in Rolling Stone opined that the current edit of the film focused too much on John Phillips' band, The Mamas and the Papas, whose segments were curiously the only ones with, quote, practically perfect sound, while the sound quality on other artists' performance were said to be lacking. Uh, After viewing footage of his band, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, Paul Simon was reportedly so dismayed by the quality that he was uh, possibly going to opt out of the final film. And the sound on Jefferson Airplane segments was described as, quote, so bad, in fact, that it will do no- more harm to the airplane to be heard in the film than to release a bad record. In the meantime, Pennebaker was said to be working on soundtrack issues. Uh, Rolling Stone also named significant acts who had been edited out of the film, including Al Cooper and his band, The Blues Project, uh, The Electric Flag, Lou Rawls, Buffalo Springfield, and The Birds. Uh, Due to the last-minute nature of the producer's request for talent releases and out of concern for proper audio quality, The Grateful Dead and Steve Miller Band reportedly refused to be filmed in the first place. Uh, Monterey Pop represented Otis Redding's last performance before his death on December 10, 1967. And the film also was said to have depicted The Who's American debut and Jimi Hendrix's first major American concert. Uh, rock critic Robert Christgau uh, considers Monterey Pop the best of the 1960s concert documentaries, saying, quote, The music and its ce- uh, celebrants are like a wonderful secret, wonderful, because even though everybody knows about it, it still delivers the thrill of discovery. Unveiled in 1967 or 1968, uh, Baker's vision of the 1967 event was instrumental in convincing potential organizers and participants that music was the healthiest way to crystallize the energy of a counterculture that by then seemed both blessedly inevitable and dangerously embattled. Um, and the New York Times in 1968 said, it is possible that the way to a new kind of musical using some of the talent and energy of what is still the most lively contemporary medium may begin with just this kind of musical performance documentary. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about Monterey Pop. Um, I had not seen this before. Um, Me neither. For, so first time. Um, what did you think of it? I had a lot of thoughts. Um But I guess my first thought um, was how enjoyable it was, like how easy to sit and watch and listen. Live music isn't something that like comes very naturally to me. Music isn't something that comes very naturally to me. So um, when someone's like, hey, let's go see this concert, I'm like, that's fine. I, I could... I could do without it. I wouldn't mind one way or the other. So um, it was nice to sit and watch a bunch of concerts of music that I like. I had a big like hippie dippy phase like in middle and high school. So these were artists that I was very familiar with. So it was nice Mm -hmm. to see them live. Um, I would have liked to have seen them live like when I was in that phase. Like that was the live music that I would have, I would have given anything to know about this, I guess. when I had that phase, it probably wouldn't have been a phase if I had seen, if I had seen it. So I'm glad I saw it now. Um, also, um, towards the end there, it, it ends with Ravi Shankar's um, mm. gorgeous playing. Um, and it was really late when I watched this and it put me to sleep. 
I just that would be a nice put to sleep moment though like I think that's a that's a good one yeah I just sort of I was like wow like this is just like really easy to watch very enjoyable and now I'm like there's you know there's some fast playing there it gets really people are up and dancing really excited but and then it just sort of it played me off and I just sort of drifted to sleep for like a good 20 minutes I missed the clapping you know the thunderous applause nope Mm -hmm. couldn't wake me up nice no that's I mean that sounds like a like a great way to to finish the movie like lulled into sleep because of good music um I did want to talk about that scene because every a lot of the the sequences are filmed kind of the same like you get uh either a lot of like the band or the musician who's on stage and like it kind of focuses on them and less audience or you get like this kind of like you know back and forth between like musician and audience and things like that and that one is is strange because you don't see Ravi Shankar for like the first like the first three or four minutes oh I, I love that you know that's, it's just you know it's just it's just like going around the audience for the most part it's it's so it's it's a not it's such sorry I have a lot of words about this um but first I just wanted to say that another thought that I have one thought that I have when I was watching this like as I'm watching um this for the first time and you you um when you were given the background before this you had said um the thrill of discovery mm-hmm. um I tried to think really hard as I'm watching this for the first time too, like what it must've been like to see these acts, like um, before they got big, like to see Jimi Hendrix before he got big, to see Mm. the who before he got big, to see Janis Joplin before she is Janis Joplin, when she was just the lead singer of the big brother and the holding band, like when she was just the vocalist, not Mm. like, what it must have been like to see these acts for the first time, like what a thrill that might've been. And I honestly couldn't comprehend it. Um, it didn't really register for me. Like, cause again, like I said, like live music and me, we don't really get along, but I was like, wow, I can't even imagine how I, I truly can't imagine how exhilarating of a experience this must've been. Um, well, just like in, in like the performances themselves. I mean, the f- very famous one is Jimi Hendrix because most people didn't get to see, you know, Jimi Hendrix live. And so like this is a really like rare treat to kind of see him. And then it's famous because he lights his guitar on fire. <laughs> and it's and it's kind of it's kind of a funny. So that I was noticing this. It's a very funny dichotomy of how they shoot that sequence compared to a couple performances before where the who are playing and so the who are playing and they also just start smashing all of their stuff and like the audience is just kind of like yeah they're smashing stuff that's awesome and then you have uh jimmy hendrix and he's like you know spraying the kerosene on on the uh on the guitar and lighting it on fire and then just start smashing it and like it you have less of like the audience reception of it you just like cut to this I think there's like scared, like almost like like a woman who's just kind of like, what's what's going on here? And, and it's a strange, it's a strange like, oh, okay. You know, when Jimi Hendrix does it, it's concerning. Yeah. You don't like it when I do it. That's so good. Oh, that's so good. But I have like a million thoughts running around and I think I had a point earlier and I'm sure I'll find it. I'm sure I'll, about Ravi Shankar. I'm sure I'll find my way back to it. But I wonder if it's not because like Jimmy's performance was like inherently more sexual, like than the who's like i mean he was he was having sex with his guitar like throughout the whole thing um also in addition to watching monterey pop i because hbo max is great and Mm -hmm. it also had jimmy live at monterey and it had shake otis redding like Mm -hmm. so it had their two full sets because we don't get a whole lot of them either um notice redding's whole set is fantastic it's so good it i mean he brings tears to my eyes every time i love him i he's such a beautiful and unique sound and one that wasn't replicated again on stage um truly singular performance and uh i didn't realize that it was the same year that he passed like so soon like that's him in his like that's him in his prime and to and you you talk about discoverability it's like here was that moment of discovery for a lot of people with Otis and well also just like you know talking before like you know I've listened to a a bunch of Otis Redding before so like I was familiar with both songs like it wasn't like I was learning new stuff but you never like seen him 
there is that difference between like listening to the recording and like watching him perform it because you know you like when he when he just kind of rolls into his second song like it's he's performing the hell out of it you know he's making them like repeat parts the band's kind of getting into it like it's like it's just like this and so like that part of it there's less of a discovery for me of going like oh i don't like i wasn't going oh who are the mamas and the papas or who's janice shopla that kind of stuff but it was more like discovering oh this is how cool it was to see them live because that's awesome there's that point okay there it is about how i didn't connect or how i couldn't there it is nice Sorry, I'm a little all over the place with this. This, like, just brings up a whole lot of, like, quick feelings yeah. and the way well, that it jumps through sets. I'm so well, sorry to be so disorganized. Well, was that was that what it was like for you is that, like, you knew a lot of these musicians, but, then, but it was, like, this kind of, oh, like, so this is what it was like to see Otis Redding live on stage, like, engaging with an audience. Yes, and really, like, he owns that audience. It's his to, like... You're going to wait. We're going to hit this line one more time. I don't think you heard it. We're going to hit it yeah. again. I don't think you heard it. Let's hit it again. Like, look how, like, look at the control I have over you guys. The, mm-hmm. the, the control that, like, the, the real stage presence that I have. And I, mm-hmm. I really also, I think I like the way it was shot and um, in, for the for, shot for the Monterey Pop versus how it was shot for Shake. Did you get a chance to see Shake? I did. So in Shake, um, it's all, it's almost all, it's the cameras just on the stage, like on him, on Mm -hmm. him dancing, on him singing. We see some of the audience. There are some cuts, like some random cuts to the audience where it's like this, he's clearly performing at night and Mm -hmm. we're seeing cuts to an audience during the day where it's like, okay, it's not necessarily the same audience. So we're not getting the, same sort of reaction shots but what i like in monterey pop is how it was shot from behind and you know it's just his it's just his silhouette you know sometimes we see flashes from the lights like more of his perspective but it's just his voice crooning to you it's just his voice like making you fall in love and making you feel that raw power and that emotion that he's singing to like how strong you know he has another song that's how strong my love is that's how strong his love is like as it you know comes out through his song i think i like the way that that's shot better and then here's another thing about Shankar is how we don't see him like we just hear his music and so it's we we hear and see them exclusively through their music and and the and we get more of a visual gosh it's all going away from me sorry yeah, well, and going back to the Ravi Shankar one, and maybe I'm I'm reading too much into it. That I I I started a little um, kind of like eyebrow raised with that, not because he was bad or anything. Like his music was wonderful, but you just kind of like like we said for like five minutes or so, it's just him. Like it's him in the background. Like you 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 hear the music, but then it's just kind of going over the sea of people, and it's a little odd to me because there's kind of like this. And, it, and I don't think the filmmakers are necessarily doing it explicitly, but there's like, you know, you have this predominantly, quite you know, predominantly white audience, um, kind of like falling into kind of this like exotic spell almost, you know, because you, again, you don't see them, you hear the music playing for the first part, like you mentioned, it gets faster and the tempo moves up, but for the first part, it's very like, it's very slow moving. It's just, it's very, I mean, I can see why like you would kind of doze a little bit because it is just very like mesmerizing, but like he spends the, the, the filmmakers spend like five minutes of like kind of going through this crowd and you kind of have these people and they're clearly like transfixed by it, but I don't know. Again, like that's why I say I might be reading too much into it because I'm like it. It kind of just to me like like they're transfixed with like this, you know, this this exotic thing happening. And then I think it does turn over once you actually see him and you like watch the performance happening because then he kind of takes center stage um, from the audience who's just kind of there like gawking at how good he is. Yeah, there there definitely is this it plays really well with like audience reaction shots i really enjoy those like you see someone like meditating to it you see them like praying and it's like i don't know how like authentic his prayer style is as this like Mm -hmm. 
white man at a concert in California is. Yeah. Um, but like the experience is there and like the awe is there. I don't know if the reference, like the reverence is there, but. Yeah, like I don't know, but I'm just kind of, it's more just like you just see, I think I saw like maybe two Indian faces in the audience. <laughs> not, a, not a whole lot of. And then, and then I think the other person of color, I think, was Jimi Hendrix. They show him at one point when he he's in the audience. Yeah, and then after that, I'm just like, it's a lot of white people from California. That are the yogis. I, like, tried to think, like, historically, like, 67, like, you know, what, like, cults do we have popping up that, like, worship these, like, you know, Svanjali, or, you know, these, um, what, what's the one, Wild Wild Country, like, that cult? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, how many of those sort of, like, yeah. cults are popping up and, like, this sort of sweeping movement towards, like, looking... Well, that and, like, people... And, like, uh, especially musicians, like, this obsession with that type of music. I mean, like, the probably the best example is, like, the Beatles, Beatles going... Beatles and Robbie Shankar had said that yeah. they, they were the ones that, like, tried to really... That really pushed him to, like, be on the bill. Yeah, that kind of... You know, and, and again, like, that's not, you know... It's... It, I'm not... It's, you know chastising the Beatles for that but like there's like this I guess there's like this air of like fascination with him and his music that um like I say it doesn't it's not very like insidious in the filmmaking it's more just like I just felt like it's a real strong choice to not show Ravi Shankar for like and his and the the rest of the people on stage with him for like five minutes and just kind of like show these people like mouth agape staring at him playing um Again, I don't know. I I might be I might be overdoing it, but I'm just kind of like it was weird to me to just watch all these white Californians just be like, oh my gosh, look at him. Because you didn't really, you never got that with any of the other musicians. You know, every all the other performances are very, like I say, are are very kind of similarly structured to a degree. Um, oh, go ahead. I don't know. I guess I don't have much to say. Much else to say on that. I I I kind of liked I kind of liked being sort of enticed. Um, transfixed by his music and then like slowly put to sleep i mean that was my response to it it was very no his stuff's fantastic yeah and, that, and that's why I, I didn't get enough time to research it but i'd be curious to see to maybe read more about his reception in the u.s like if this was a big first performance for him or you know if he had other if he was kind of if he had like a a following to a degree prior to this i would be curious to kind of learn more about that to kind of see if maybe that's part of it um I do want to say, like, in the notes, um, they're complaining about, like, poor audio quality and things like that. There are some rough performances in this one. I, I can see why Paul Simon was probably pissed off, because the Simon and Garfunkel scene is not great. <laughs> it's, it felt it's, like a blip. I kind of... Yeah, well, it's like not great. That. Well, yeah. like, like they have this, like, red light on them, and so they, like, they, they're both just, like, bright red. Um, and then it's, you know, they're, they're singing, I forgot what song they're singing, but it's just, it's, you know, very soft. Um, and then it's just, you know, like bright red art and Paul. <laughs> I'm like, it's just a weird scene. It doesn't sound very good. It's just a very strange sequence. Um, and then there is a lot of the mamas and the papas. I think that they, I think they, which I like them, but there is like, I think they play like four songs. Yeah, they play pair. a lot. Um, we see we see them a lot we see them the most in the mm -hmm. audiences um like their reaction it, it, it was nice seeing mama cast like reacting to and enjoying um certain acts and like really mm -hmm. being just so like wow did these other musicians like i you know and that kind of felt that was a nice little connection like it seemed like she was supportive of the acts that were following them or came before mm -hmm. them and that was cool to see um, she's just so charming and I love her. Uh, yeah, she was in, and she's great. Um, they had, they have one song where she kind of is the lead singer in it and she does, and her performance is fantastic. Yeah. She does like some crowd work with it and like, mm -hmm. tells them just like, yeah, girl, like you're so, you, you got the stage presence. Like you mm -hmm. are, you are love it. Love to watch. But, um, and we see them like in the beginning, like making the phone calls. I mean, they were the ones that like were trying so hard to like put it together. So, I guess it like for me it made sense to like showcase them. It was kind of 
their concert, right? Is that my understanding or am I wrong? Yeah, they did a lot of the the back work to make it happen. It's in, it's it's an it, this one was interesting compared to the one that we watched um, last week, Jazz on a Summer's Day, which very much is like I think I think Jazz was better just because it it not only like gives you <clears throat> a really firm feeling of like what the festival atmosphere feels like like this one does that a little bit at the beginning but then once people start playing music it kind of drops that then you kind of forget that there's a festival you just kind of go from act to act to act to act um and that one does a better job of kind of weaving the two and also i think it just does more you know it's funny that da pennebaker says like oh i didn't watch a um concert documentary before doing this i'm like yeah you probably should have watched jazz on a summer's day because that one does a better job of um and again we mentioned it in the reviews last week of people think of like the new york times saying it's too artsy but it does like like this you know this fantastic job of like kind of adding this visual lyricism to the jazz music so it's not just like you know camera on stage here's you know louis armstrong playing it like does like this kind of it also plays like whatever the, the music they're playing the, the camera and the editing kind of plays along with it and i didn't really feel outside of the ravi shankar scene and what you you were describing in like the otis redding scene those are the only ones that feel like really well directed the other ones feel very like camp like you know a couple cameras out there and like here's the concert yeah, I, I didn't, I, I felt, I was like, come on, like, give us a little something, like, something more to look at, because this is, you're making this a visual experience, you're making this concert, you know, what you listen to, you're turning it more into a visual experience, and I need some visuals to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked some of the, like, projection work behind some of the acts, that was fun, mm-hmm. that felt very DIY, and that felt very, like, that felt very familiar. Um, you know, you can see that at any like local concert dive bar where someone's like manipulating a projector with like colors and pictures and stuff. So it, that felt very like, it's like, oh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Like, um, yeah. Was, <laughs> this there is was- like, you go. No, I was just going to say, there is kind of like this DIY element a little bit to all of these, where it's not like, none of them feel like super professional um, stage sequences. Everything feels very like, you know, we're kind of making it happen. Yeah. It's about the music. It's Mm -hmm. about, yeah. So, yeah, there were some performances that, like, I I forgot about Simon and Garfunkel. I really liked Jefferson Airplane, and I didn't really like they what I saw of them. I, was I like, like them, is... too, but they weren't very good. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this isn't very great. Like, I guess I see that now. Like, my, my thoughts on this, I, I didn't even think about, like, the bad performances. I was just like, there's that movie. Great. Like, mm-hmm. I was just... I was curious to watch it and I'm so glad this gave me a good excuse and an outlet to watch it. And no, it's still, it, I still liked it. I just, um, it's, it's just, it's kind of a perfect little, um, kind of, uh, comparison to last week where it's much more like artfully focused and trying to kind of like, you know, it's going jazz is jazz, but like we need to visualize it as well. And this one, this one feels much more like, like 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 I can see how it was originally intended to be just like an hour long special on ABC because I'm like it feels like an hour long special on ABC a lot of the times. Yeah, it feels like TV a lot of the time, and so like <clears throat> that it doesn't make it bad because again like I think what elevates it is like getting to see that Otis Redding performance, getting to see that Ravi Shankar performance, getting to see Jimi Hendrix, things like that. Like those are fantastic, and and, and those are like moments that are kind of captured in time. Um, but I think everything else just really isn't, um, isn't as like formed and, and they definitely don't have like the kind of visual sense that the directing team for jazz on a summer's day had. And so it's interesting to kind of see that where they were very much in the, we just want to capture this festival and the performance is there, but we're not really, not to say like, we're not making a movie, but it didn't, it didn't feel like they're out there going like we're, we're trying to make like a movie to present out there we're just kind of capturing things capturing this movement this feeling i I liked the girl at the beginning she said it was going to be she asked have you ever been to 11 it's going to feel like that and the the vibrations from it it was more of a experience instead of something to 
watch and then yeah so well which, which is kind of disappointing because i'm like yeah like that, that's why you sh- they should have got more into like they and they cut over to like people they have like uh you know they have they had like the moment where they cut to all these like couples who are like all coupled up and like kissing and things you get you get like a short like a short little sequence of that or i'm trying to think of other stuff just kind of like pe- like little like sequences of people all doing kind of the same things um united by the sound like that was really nice you get like a, a kind of a blip moment at the beginning where i think it's like part of the police who are going to be there talking about how if there's what does he see like if there's fifty thousand or fifty five thousand people we're going to have a problem you know the the black panthers are supposed to be here things like you know and it's so always kind of curious or the hell's angels are supposed to be here the black panther's are supposed to be here and like you get a scene where like a hell's angels like a jacket's there or you know so you assume a you member, see them but, just like you just see the back of their jacket it's like where's some of that like yeah you never get any of that you're like did they like are they there like did they show up like let's capture some of that like is there like anything because it, it kind of like he makes that comment you're like oh well shit like probably later in this that maybe something will happen is there gonna be like a real like riot because then you have the who busting shit up with my generation and like all these cops mm-hmm. here like do you think like what's gonna happen and yeah and that's and that's to me that's kind of just you know again like that goes back to my point of like it doesn't really capture the overall vibe you know pretty like you like I could, you kind of want to capture the vibe of like what's going on with the festival and i'm like i think seeing you know if, if you know the black panthers are there the hell's angels are there or whatever like you know you don't really you see the police at the beginning you kind of see like officers going in there you see you, they talk to the to that cop very early on but then you really don't ever see them again and so you don't know if there was like problems it kind of just seems like this like by watching that you just kind of feel like it goes off without a hitch it's very different from like um the movie we were going to talk about this week woodstock where you're getting all the different facets coming in or, or something like gimme shelter where you're getting all the different you know figuring out like the the behind the scenes and ins and outs of what's going on there um this one just kind of feels like yeah this thing happened all these cool musicians were there and nothing bad happened it was all good we're good to go it's perfect and everyone lived happily ever after yeah like no this is all done like it's a music festival it's a music (laughs) festival there's all these like clashing ideas and clashing musical styles and cultures clashing that should be like are we just like you know are we just bust them up action movie watchers that's like do something like yeah we're just well it's it's just just, like like, so conditioned like that we need some some like and then they're like, do we need an explosion? And it's like, we got an explosion. He set his guitar on fire. Is that not enough? Like, No, that's cool. But like, you know, it's it's kind of like you don't ever have like that scene where they just like, they I guess they don't do much interviewing. That's what kind of bums me out. Like, you know, they, they never have like that interview with just like the couple who's just like completely stoned out of their mind just talking about something or like somebody or just like that kind of like you never get like those like like those great people on the street like just kind of you know what you what do you think about this festival oh man this, this is the best thing i've ever seen in my life you know like, like just, just something like the music come out of the guitar yeah you never get anything good like that it's just, it's very it's you know that's that's why i say like like i wish they went into the audience more like they have those moments where they're showing like couples interacting and things like that but it's never like go and talk to people and like get, get like good because like you mentioned like the girl at the beginning is really it's really funny because she's just like yeah it's gonna be like a love-in like get more of those people to talk throughout the movie they would have been funny yeah like they get like some more color throughout like there's that girl that like her job is to wipe down all the seats and he's like Mm -hmm. how did you get so lucky and she's like i'm not lucky like like yeah girl you're not like that that job sucks but you know you do what you got to do to see some live music right if you're about this and yeah. then I, I would have liked to have seen more of like the culture, like at the concert, like what it's like to to travel to a festival like that too. Like I would have liked to have heard like how far people have traveled, like you know, yeah. like when you see people in their vans, it's like, where are you coming from? Like, what's your story? How did you get here? Like, they're sharing bites of bananas and <laughs> sleeping bags together. Like, you know, what is this experience like on your end? Like, if this is this is the concert that like spawned Woodstock right like this is Woodstock before Woodstock like a lot of the same acts are in the first one right I believe so I'm not gonna so, go on the record on that <laughs> oh well I guess I will um we're gonna get fact checked yeah, yeah we'll fact check me later but it's like you know this is the big this is the big concert before like 
any other co concert of this of this nature of the scale like this style of music like did Woodstock did come after so there you go yeah so this is the first this the the Woodstock before it was Woodstock so it's like it would have been nice to have like seen the beginnings of like that festival culture and like to hear from like the old heads like what their experience is like going into it beyond um just it's like 11. Yeah, no, that's that's my biggest complaint with the movies. That it just doesn't really give you a a good reading of like the vibe there. It kind of gives you some stuff at the beginning. You get you watch people, but like I said, I think it would have been nice to kind of have these talking heads as you go through it of just kind of like them talking to people along the way, um, and then you match that with the different acts because it really does. It's kind of like they have the beginning where they're getting everything set up, and then once they start playing, I think the mamas and the papas play the first song, and once you hit that. It's pretty much just like performance, 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 perform you know, it's, it's, it's very like regimented after that. Um, yeah. I would also have liked some, some chrono, some like a timeline because it, as it goes from like day to night and night to day and day to night, it's like, well, what day of the concert are we on? Cause then that was another thing for me when like to watch the who bust up their set and then Jimi Hendrix bust up his, it's like, who came first? Who did it first? Mm-hmm. Like, did the crowd just see, like, the Who bust up their stuff, and then Jimmy does it the next night, and it's like, rip off, like, we've seen this before, like, or did Jimmy do it first, and, like, nobody really was, like, that amped up for it, and they weren't taking to it, and then to see it again by the Who, it's like, oh, yeah, like, this is really cool now, yeah. like, I don't know, like, I would have liked the timeline, too, because I don't know. Yeah, it's, you don't really get a sense of like when things are, are happening, um, which is fine, you know, but, you know, again, going back to the movie we, we talked about last week, you get a sense of like how time is passing and like who's playing when and when things are happening. Um, and this one, yeah, you're just kind of going through almost like a checklist of like, all right, now this, pe now this person plays, now this person plays, now this person plays. Um, and so it's disappointing that, but at the same time, like, again, like I... I do think it's it's worth watching, especially if you're into this into this generation of music, um, like I, like, and that's why like we mentioned like this. You do get this sense of discovery, not because you're going to be like, "Who's Jefferson Airplane?" necessarily, but you're at least going to be like, "Oh, like I've listened to a lot of the Mamas and the Papas. Here are them performing live. You know, oh, I know who Jimi Hendrix is. Here is him performing live. Things like that." And so, I think like on that level is where this one is um, is really effective. Do you have anything? Do you have anything else before we wrap up on on Monterey Pop? No. I guess I'm just, I was glad that I um, watched Shake and Jimmy at Monterey just to like get a little more of a feel for it. I listened to a couple playlists, playlists that had the set list like mm -hmm. in the entirety just to again try and like put myself into that mindset. And it was a fun little escape into 1967, mm -hmm. a time that I look upon with nostalgia glasses, a time that I'll never get to truly experienced so it was a good night at the movie show to to escape for a little bit and to be slowly put to sleep by the smooth stylings of Ravi Shankar so I'm, what was your uh, what was your favorite performance Otis Redding mm -hmm. hands down his performance of I've been loving you gives me chills every time makes me cry every time um and I eat it up. And I remember in Twin Peaks Return, yeah. I won't say, I don't know, can I talk? I mean, it was like yeah. five years ago that came out, but um, of course there's that big, beautiful moment for a lot of, that a lot of people have been waiting 25 years for when um, they got a normal get together and it's scored uh, to that. Like all the action mm -hmm. unfolds to I've been loving you. And uh, when I, I put it together as he started singing, like, oh, that was from Twin And I remember bawling my eyes out watching that episode because um, it was such a great moment watching They Got in Normal finally, like, get together. And mm -hmm. then, you know, and then to hear it again, I was like, oh, got chills. I was like, I'm back in that moment. I love Otis Redding. I've got so many emotions like i've been loving him for so long like this just like what a performance yeah yeah 
No, I, I can't argue. I can't, I can't argue, argue that. that. I think that's the best performance of. Yeah. Not only like, like you know, you know like, like song, like singing and song wise, but also, but also just, just like the best, best shot. shot. Like, like it's just, it's really, it's really well done. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, well I, I think I you think mentioned before, before, but if you'd like to watch Monterey Pop, it is on HBO Max currently. So I think it's on the Criterion Channel if you have that. But it's also on. HBO Max for, for, for folks, folks who, who aren't, aren't on there, there. So, so catch it there. But, but um, um, until, until then, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. Cinematary. You, can you can find us on. Yeah. <laughs> you can find us on. Podcast. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cemetery on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cemetery, where if you'd like to go on Instagram, we, I, we have all of our stories that I did of the movies that I watched at TIFF. So um, there's that, or you can go to our Twitter and listen or look at the ones that uh, Andrew saw. And then uh, if you would like to support the, or in on letterbox, letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, if you'd like to support the show, whether it's $1, $5, you know, it's one time $5. It doesn't matter. Like if you just want to support the show in any way, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary. Thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marthothi, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, next week, we're going to be continuing our uh, concert movie series with probably the one that we were like yeah we have to do this if we're going to do this series and that is uh stop making sense from 1984 so um and also like i said at the beginning um if you uh if you would like to hear the kind of full tiff diaries from andrew reed and i will be doing that in part one of next week's episode so that will be there as well but until next week thank you all for listening see you then